Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An Erio's original. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Rachel Hannell. Rachel is an associate professor of creative writing at Minnesota State Mankato and author of Not the Camilla We Knew, One Woman's Path from Small Town America to the Symbionese Liberation Army. Let's hear what she has to say about the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So I would like to start off by asking you to kind of set the stage for us. It's the 1970s. What is the political climate in the United States and particularly in California? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very fraught time. So at this point, we're coming out of the 1960s, which was just really a, a radical time. There's a lot of protest going on. Clearly, the Vietnam War is an issue. There's issues about racial equality, gender equality, uh, all sorts of social issues, uh, class status, economics. So in the 1960s, we had a lot of protest movements. And that era really started to fade out toward the end of the 60s and early 1970s. The Vietnam War was still going on. We had made some progress regarding race and gender and class. So a lot of the quote unquote hippies of the 1960s, I guess, grew up a little bit and they said, okay, we've done our work, some things are changing, so let's move on with our lives. But there was still a group by the early 1970s that was not satisfied yet. And so they said, hey, you know what? There's still a lot of problems here that we need to take care of. 
And this really was centered in California, particularly in the Bay Area. So if you were on the far left, uh, the Bay Area was the place to go. You still were finding a lot of, I would say, even more extreme revolutionary thought at that time. Wow. So so can you give us a little backstory on Donald DeFries and who was he before he was radicalized or mm-hmm. a, and how did he become the leader of the Symbionese Liberation Army? Yeah, Donald DeFries uh, was a prisoner in the California prison system. Um, by all accounts, in the 1960s, he's kind of a, a petty thief, kind of a small-time criminal. Um, it sounds like he may have been a police informant, but at one point, uh, he was arrested for uh, theft and was sent to jail. And the prison system at that time, it's kind of hard to think about it now, but there was a movement within prisons where outsiders could come into the prisons and basically join prison groups. So in uh, Vacaville, where Donald DeFries was, there was a group called the Black Cultural Association. And a lot of those leftists that I was talking about that were living in the Bay Area uh, decided that they wanted to be part of this group as well. Uh, So we had a lot of uh, young college students would go into the prison and actually join in on these meetings. And so that's where Donald DeFries got connected with some of the radicals in the Bay Area. And can you help us further understand the SLA? Who were its members and what were their ideological beliefs? What were they fighting for, essentially? Yeah, if you look at uh, some of their beginning manifestos, uh, they were really prolific writers. So they were kind of always writing these manifestos and communiques. At the surface, it would be things that we would agree with. They wanted equality. They wanted racial equality. They wanted gender equality. They wanted class equality. They wanted a much more just equal society in general. So that all sounds well and fine. But they really took it a step further where they said, "Okay, we're not getting this right now. We are willing to do whatever it takes to try to get there. And if that means taking up arms and having a violent revolution to get to this point, that's what we're willing to do. How do they then somehow get involved in the killing of Marcus Foster, the Oakland uh, school superintendent? What what? What did they intend to raise awareness for with with this act and and how did it backfire? Yeah, it really is such a bizarre situation because this is coming from a group where racial equality is a huge thing. And Marcus Foster is a black school superintendent and they decide to target him, though. The beef that they had with Marcus Foster and the Oakland School District was the issue of student identification. So there was a movement in the schools to have student IDs, basically to let students on campus who were only students, because there had been some instances where non-students were coming into the schools and causing trouble and causing violence. Uh, So they said, well, we need student IDs. Uh, We're going to post uh, police officers at the door. I mean, today it sounds perfectly normal, but this was the early 1970s. Uh, So some people thought that that was a way to maybe identify more troubled students. And they were really concerned, the SLA was really concerned that this was the beginning of the school to prison pipeline. So that was their major problem that they had uh, with the Oakland School District and Foster in particular. And once they do kill Marcus Foster, what happens next? How, How do people respond? 
Yeah. So it didn't make any sense to people, you know, (laughs) by all accounts, Marcus Foster is this great superintendent. He had come from Philadelphia. He had made major strides in the Philadelphia school district. He's coming to Oakland. He cares deeply about schools and about children and helping them succeed. So there were so many people in the Bay Area that said, this does not make any sense. So any kind of support the SLA had hoped to garner through an action like this completely dissipated. Very, very few people were taking them seriously after the murder. Then how does Patty Hearst become the group's next target? So it sounds like in those in the prison system where we had the prison groups um, that they had been talking about, okay, if we want to do any kind of revolutionary statement, we should kidnap somebody who is well known. This had worked for other far left groups around uh, the world. So the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, um, we're seeing a lot of revolutionary groups worldwide. And kidnapping is kind of one of these major actions that people are undertaking, not really in the United States, but elsewhere. And so they basically had a list of people, hey, if we're going to kidnap somebody who has money and who is well known, that we can bring attention to our cause. Uh, They had this list and Patty Hearst was a name on that list. Could you give us kind of like a quick overview of Patty Hearst's life before the kidnapping? Where, what was she like? And, 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 uh, you know, we know her, she comes from a very wealthy family, but what was she like? Yeah. So by all accounts, it sounds like Patty is kind of the rebel of the Hearst family. So the Hearst family is very wealthy. They are part of this huge media empire at the time. Uh, Her parents, Randolph Hearst and Catherine Hearst, are kind of from, they're from old money. Um, So they have that kind of old-fashioned attitude. If there was American royalty, the Hearst would be American royalty. Um, And her parents are fairly conservative. Uh, Patty comes from a family, I think, of five children. And she is kind of known as the rebel. She's rebelling against this money, this old money, this old way of life. Um, And at the time of her kidnapping, she's just 19. So she's kind of has that teenage rebellion streak going on. So it's February 4th, 1974. Patty Hearst is kidnapped by SLA members. How how did they do it? Could you walk us through the how the kidnapping played out. Yeah. So Patty is living with her fiance, Stephen Weed, who is a graduate student in philosophy at UC Berkeley. Uh, he had been her teacher. So even she she's known Stephen Weed for a few years and he was her high school teacher. So at this point they're engaged. So they're living in an apartment in Berkeley. So a couple of people, I think three people from the SLA knock on the door. They give kind of the story that they're having car trouble and they just bust into the apartment. They beat up Stephen Weed and they grab Patty and they take her and they take her kicking and screaming and put her into the trunk of a car and drive away. Now she's, once she's taken, what, what is the SLA's next move? How how did the authorities and the Hearst family hear about the kidnapping and then respond? Yeah, so they put out a communique and they say, you know, here's here's this person that we've taken. Um, She has a lot of money or the family has a lot of money. So it 
it seems like, well, they'll, they'll ask for a ransom. They want to have money to fund their cause. And they do ask for money, but they ask for money to feed people in California. Because again, they're thinking about equality. They're thinking about fairness. There's a lot of people going hungry. And so initially they wanted $400 million from the hearse to feed people in California. Anyone could you know, walk up and request food from this massive donation. Um, but clearly that's a lot of money. So Randolph Hearst comes back and basically he says, well, I can give you $6 million. Wow. What are the conditions of, of Patty's captivity? And uh, when do things start to change uh, within the group? Mm -hmm. So yeah, in the, in the beginning, she is literally a captive. She is kept in a closet. She's blindfolded. Uh, various members of the SLA come into the closet. They uh, talk to her about, you know, their, their revolution, their plans for revolution. I mean, she's just getting it full scale. Um, definitely there's uh, some sexual assault going on as well during this time. So she's kept in the closet for, I think, maybe three or four weeks, uh, they decide that uh, she sounds like she's willing to talk to them or to think about, you know, joining their group. And so they let her out of the closet. Uh, they take her blindfold off. She finally gets to meet everyone. And then I think it's on April 3rd, they give her a choice or they say they give her a choice and they say, okay, you've been with us. You know, we've gotten some money from your parents. Uh, we can let you go. So if you want to go, you're free to go. Or if you like what we've been telling you and you want to be part of the revolution, you can stay with us. And so that's when she made her famous declaration of I've decided to stay and fight. What is Patty's relationship with the members of the group, particularly uh, DeFreeze. And I'd love to know more about Camila Hall, who mm -hmm. is the subject of your book. Yeah. So Patty wrote a book uh, in 1982 about her story. Uh, so there's certain members of the group that she does get to know better than others, members that are in the beginning, coming to the closet very often. And then after that, ones that she's um, becoming uh, closer to or getting to know. Uh, one would be Angela Atwood, um, definitely the men of the group. So with DeFreeze and Bill Harris, um, sounds like they are partaking in these assaults of Patty. Wow. Um, also a young man named Willie Wolf is part of the SLA. And so when uh, Patty ultimately goes to trial, uh, this relationship between her and Willie, Willie Wolf really gets a lot of scrutiny. And so it's, it's looked at, it's kind of portrayed as a love story, as kind of sick as that is. Uh, there was a lot of question at the time of her trial. Did she really love Willie Wolf? Did they really develop a relationship? Um, but there's other members of the SLA that she appeared to not know very well. And Camilla Hall would be one of them. In this entirety of Patty Hearst's memoir, Camilla is mentioned very, very infrequently. So, um, you know, I wrote this book about Camilla and by all accounts, Camilla is just really a, a very kind of minor member of the SLA, uh, which brings up a lot of questions of why she was even involved. Mm. Now, what was the purpose of the bank robbery where Hearst is famously caught on a surveillance tape holding a firearm? Was, was this her coming out moment? Uh, and how, how did they prepare her for this? It was her coming out moment. It occurred just uh, 10 or 12 days after she said, I've chosen to stay. 
um, in part of this group and they needed money. So they, they were able to get some money from Randolph Hearst, but that was to feed people. Um, but they did need money to, you know, they're, they're renting a series of apartments. And so they do need money to, to live and rent places and buy food and that kind of thing. And so they decide to undertake this bank robbery of the Hibernia bank. And yeah, Patty shows up, um, with a semi-automatic rifle and it sounds like all of this time that she's been kept captive in the entire group as well, they are consistently hour after hour, day after day training, training in these hideouts that they're living in. They're training with their guns, uh, trying to unload and load and practice, you know, fake shoot and that kind of thing. Um, and so she is part of that training. They're showing her how to use a gun. And at what point does uh, Hearst go from being a kidnapping victim to a fugitive on the run. I guess this is in the eyes of of the public. Yeah, definitely. Well, after the bank robbery, for sure. You know, she that that's the point where she shows up on all of the FBI wanted posters that um, there's kind of little sympathy for her at this point where before it seemed like, oh, you know, this this poor girl, she's a victim of a kidnapping. But now here she's showing up with a gun and she's pointing a gun at people. And now she's on the FBI most wanted list. Like they want to find her. They want to get her. Um, so definitely it seemed like public opinion swayed at that point. How did she attempt to save the Harris couple um, and, and and lead authorities to the SLA hideout and the subsequent shootout with members. This is obviously much later. How did that all go down? Yeah. So about a month after the bank robbery, the SLA, um, they get to LA. They want to leave the Bay Area. They feel like, you know, the cops are really closing in. So they go to Los Angeles and they're working in teams of three. At this point, there's only nine people in the SLA. So they're in teams of three. And Patty is with Bill and Emily Harris. They are sent to go get some supplies at a sporting goods store. And so they do that. They pay for their supplies. Bill Harris, for some reason, decides to steal a pair of socks. So he puts a pair of socks in his pocket. The clerk sees this, chases him out of the store. Bill um, pulls out a gun against the clerk and they have a tussle. Patty's in the van waiting. She sees that Bill and Emily Harris are in trouble. So she does what she says she's trained to do in a situation like this. And she just starts firing her gun willy nilly. Thank goodness nobody's hurt, but now these three people have to flee. So they flee, they abandon their van, they hijack a car, they're able to switch vehicles. But in that van is a parking ticket and the parking ticket leads authorities to the hideout where the other six members are. And that's when there's a shootout with LA police at that point, May 17th, 1974, and six of the SLA members are killed in that shootout. Who dies during that raid? Yes. So Donald DeFries dies. Uh, five other members die, including Camilla Hall, uh, Patricia Mismoon Soltisic, Angela Atwood, Nancy Ling Perry, and Willie Wolf. Wow. After the shootout, why doesn't Patty leave the group? This feels like it's her opportunity. 
Patty had a lot of opportunities to leave. It, it, it seems, it seems like she had yes. a lot of opportunities to leave. You know, she's not uh, apprehended until 1975. So we're talking about another, you know, 16 months or so that she's on the run. She's alone a lot. She's completely alone. It's not like she's kept under lock and key this entire time by the Harrises. She really is able to kind of just live this, you know, free-ish type of life. Uh, they crisscross the country a couple of times. Uh, so when she does go to trial, that's really a major question during the trial that the jurors have of why, why didn't you just leave? You had lots of opportunities to leave. And that just really led the jury to think that she really was a member of this group. How does she eventually get caught? So finally, after all of these months, uh, the FBI is able to finally track them down. So at this point, they're back in California. They're in Sacramento. Um, it just it took that long for the FBI to just finally find them. And so when they do find Patty, she's just sitting in an apartment. It's the morning. She's having coffee. She's just <laughs> kind of relaxing at the door, uh, you know, but then at, uh, relaxing at the dinner table. But then the 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 door busts open and there they are. This moment that she had really been waiting for this entire time happened. Now, the, her defense claimed that she was a victim who suffered from Stockholm syndrome. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is possible or was she brainwashed? Do you think she was brainwashed during her time with the SLA or had she actually been radicalized and joined the cause? I think that's the million dollar question. Yeah. And I mean, that really is the question that I think why the case of Patty Hearst remains so fascinating to this day, because it really is a mystery. And those of us who are familiar with this just still are pondering, could it really have been, you know, could she have been brainwashed or did she actually believe in this cause? Uh, so definitely that was her defense, that she was brainwashed, uh, Stockholm Syndrome. But this is fairly new at the time. Um, the Stockholm Syndrome, the case that that was named after that, had only happened in 1973. So it was only the year before that uh, Patty was kidnapped. So it's relatively new. It's not really a legal defense, but her, but her lawyer, Effley Bailey, decides to argue it anyway. But again, the jury's not buying it because they just say, you know, but she had lots of opportunities to leave. Leave. She wasn't, you know, a, a captive, like a literal captive that whole time. So it was a very um, tough defense and it just didn't work. What became of the SLA and its members? So after the shootout, really, there's only three members left. So it's the Harrises and Hearst, if you want to call her a member, uh, they need help. Uh, so they go back to uh, the Bay Area, and uh, there were people who were always kind of loosely affiliated with the SLA, but they went back to these people and they said, wow, we really need help. We need to regroup. And so they were able to get another kind of cadre of members, but again, a very small number, maybe five or six more people. Um, so that little group um, was the one that remained until they were captured, at least that some of them were captured in 1975. Uh, then there was a few of them, the ones who weren't captured on that day that Patty was captured. Uh, they knew it was coming, and so they went into hiding, and many of them were living underground for 25 years. Wow. 25 years. Yep. Now, this is a question that we ask all of our guest experts. 
at the end of end of the day, if you had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the kidnapping of Patty Hearst. Who or what would that be? Hmm. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Well, I mean, certainly we have the the SLA players, right? You know, they were the ones who did the kidnapping. But I think in terms of maybe more of a concept, um, you know, can can we blame the Stockholm syndrome? Can we blame brainwashing? And there's there's many points of evidence that would suggest that. Like it's completely not out of the realm of reason. Um, and if I really had to maybe place odds on it, I I still kind of have a hard time believing that Patty Hearst just completely switched and said, yeah, I want to be a revolutionary now. That seems a, a little far-fetched to me. Um, so if I had to lean one way or the other, I would lean a little bit more to brainwashing, but maybe like a 60-40 odds or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's as close of a sure uh, odd, you know, percentage that we'll probably get right, on this right. case. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rachel, uh, for helping us understand this very interesting case. Yeah, thank you so much. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Glad you're doing something on it. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. So fascinating to talk to Rachel about... Mm -hmm this case and to get all the details 
about, you know, the the bank robberies and then mm-hmm. <laughs> what was happening behind the closed doors. Yeah. I mean, it sounds Just terrifying. It's very mysterious, but it's also so terrifying, right? Yeah, it's fun. I it was just really kind of interesting to hear her say, you know, like on a surface level, like what these people were kind of advocating for was so reasonable, yeah. you know, like equality and yeah. you know, <laughs> social justice and whatever, like fi- all of the things that like people are still fighting for today, but like the twist being like and we are willing to go to <laughs> such extreme measures to, you know, get what we want that we're going to kidnap some famous person's yeah. child and make them pay for like money for people to eat and kill it. Like it's so, it's like very specific and yet kind of like unthought of, like they haven't really thought at all. <laughs> right. It's like, so like it, it makes sense. You're like, yeah, I'm along. I'm along for the ride. Along. Okay. Okay. Oh, oh you want to kill someone? Oh no, oh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. But that's why yeah. I think it is so terrifying. Not, not mm-hmm. just that she was kidnapped and, and uh, assaulted too. And, and who knows what kind of, you know, kept in a, a small closet and how traumatizing mm-hmm. all of that is. But the fact that they were, they didn't have that grand plan to me mm-hmm. is also pretty scary. <laughs> Yeah. I, well, it's it's scary because I feel like you see it today, like with groups that are much larger and much more organized who are willing to go to extreme measures to get yeah. what they want, you know, in terms of like the, the direction the country is going. Um, it's it's amazing that a group this small, like really did capture the nation's attention for, you know, a long time. Yeah. I mean, we're it's possible. Still, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so small. I didn't realize how small it was. I know. I know. When Rachel was talking about how it was just like, in the end, there were three members. Right. And then they tried to get a few more who then lived. And one of which was a kidnapped me- member. Right? One of which yes, was yes. Himself. <laughs> yes. Yes. You can't even like really count member. her. No. It was someone who you stole. <laughs> And no. kind of indoctrinated into your cause. And this other, like these people who are under living underground for 25 years after this whole thing went down. I don't know. It is so, the, the idea of being a 19 year old yeah. person in a very volatile time coming from the family that you come from, being a bit of like a rebel and then suddenly being kidnapped and, you know, like assaulted sexually and, yes. and isolated, like. It's such a mind, uh, I don't know the right word, but it's just like... Uh, it, it's, it's trauma. Truly, it's true. Yeah. I mean, it's trauma at any age, but when it happens, I, I can only imagine when you're so young, you know, that you can't process right. it as, you know, you don't have that experience or, or that, I don't know, it, it's got to be well, there- terrifying. I think what's interesting about it too is that the the people who were her captors were like also kind of like they were like her her contemporaries, right? Like they they were young like white kids who were like fighting for justice, and it right. wasn't like it was like this nineteen year old who was uh, you know kidnapped by a bunch of like old or like you know international like kidnappers with their own. Co- it was like I would imagine that 
I don't even know where I'm, I'm going with this. I'm trying to like put my mind in the like her headspace and realize like the people who are kidnapping you, suddenly they're trying to be nice to you and getting you to join their cause. And you're like, oh, these people are not that different than me. Like maybe they do have something to say. You know, it's kind of sick and twisted, it, but. Yes, sick. It is sick and twisted. It, and it's like you were saying earlier where I feel like, you know, she maybe could have agreed with a lot of their. Right. I- ideologies, except for the killing and. <laughs> Although know. she she went close, she could have. I mean, she almost did shooting that gun during the right. Robbery. I mean that that's the mystery, though. Did she actually believe that she needed? You know, there's it's one thing to believe in in what they were fighting for, which is like justice. You know, right. for Gen- equality, yeah. <laughs> justice and equality. Right. But at what point? Do you go as far as to say I will take up arms, and I I don't know I it's a we're we're going around in circles because this yes. ma- this is still a mystery. I have to say one of the things that popped out when we were talking to Rachel was that the seventies I had never heard this put this way, but the seventies were a time where the hippies of the sixties grew mm. up and were like, okay, it's time for us to move on. You know, right. like <laughs> we made some progress. Yeah. I'm feeling good about it. Yeah. And it just reminds you to never feel like you can move on. You can never right. move on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can acknowledge progress, but the fight marches on. We're always fighting for equality and for justice and for, you know, peace. It's Yeah. We live in a volatile world. Yeah. <laughs> and it can always be taken away from you. If, mm-hmm. if you just say, all right, well, that's, that's good. Let me turn, the, you know, on to the next chapter. <laughs> well, because you may feel fine, but the other guy and the other gal around the corner yeah. don't. So they're, they're taking up arms and kidnapping people for their cause. And you're like, okay, we got I guess we got to deal with this. Can't yeah. Just... The, the, the fight never ends. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so remind us, Clayton, what did we end up sending to the alarmist jail for the Patty Hearst kidnapping? So we threw the SLA okay. in, in jail. Okay, that's good. And we gave a big slap to capitalism mm. for kind of the, I think as a more broad, like creating an environment in America that the SLA was fighting against, you know, okay, equality, racism. Yeah. You know, all that. I mean, I, I feel like you, it, capitalism and inequality, although you could say, you could argue that inequality is built into capitalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's a founding <laughs> uh, pillar. It's a pillar. Um, I, yeah, well, we had a different, I, I feel like Rachel ha- was thinking more about the outcome her response right. was uh, more about the outcome and we were focused on just literally what led us to the kidnapping. Mm-hmm. I agree. Should we so- give, should we give brainwashing a backhand? I feel like it, it could really deserve that. Yeah. I, I mean, people are, listen, people are brainwashed today it's still happening there you hear enough yeah. garbage and you start to believe it and i mean we've that's all like your reality and we've all been brainwashed to just accept capitalism <laughs> right <laughs> so yeah i think we can i think we can backhand 
brainwashing. Why not? Okay. I feel like that's right. All right. Get ready. Capitalism, you got the big slap. But watch out. Brainwashing, you're getting the backhand. And this mm-hmm. is why we talk to experts. <laughs> yeah. you, you never know. If because you... we are not and they are. And you never know if you missed a backhand, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's true. So, sometimes we make, we have big misses, but it's true. But you know what? We're trying to, I, I think, uh, we, we, we attempt to redeem ourselves and to be as thorough as we possibly can. Yes. And it's okay to say that you were wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Sometimes we're wrong. Yeah. We're definitely often wrong. Um, Stay tuned because next week we're going to be discussing the Galveston hurricane of 1900. Erios. Powered by ACAST. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.